Hi, everyone. I'm Eve Ensler, and I'm so excited to be here with you all. I have the privilege, honor, excitement to be with some of the greatest men in the world. And, um, and I really mean that. <laughs> um, I think um, one of the things I'm most excited about is that the timeliness of this panel. Um, we're literally um, speaking into the rise of the most misogynist, um, racist, bigoted, predatory culture I can remember in this country. So um, I'm going to begin by introducing everybody because I think it's really important you know who they are, and then we're going to jump in. The first person I'm going to introduce is Tony Porter. Um, he is awesome. Um, he is the co-founder of a nonprofit called a Call to Men. He does keynotes addressing issues surrounding gender equality and violence against women. Um, he's part of the National, and, and Call to Men is the National Association of Men and Women Committed to Ending Violence Against Women. And he's the author of A Well-Meaning Man Breaking Out of the Man Box. And if you haven't read this book, I urge you to read it. It's, it's, it's a kind of guide and a structural analysis of men and, and the box that they are kind of um, born into and how to break out of it. He draws deeply on his experiences growing up in working class neighborhoods in New York City, coupled with a sharp sense of empathy and talent for communication. He has set these years' experiences and skills to purpose working over 20 years as an activist and an educator seeking to affect social justice in the US and around the world. He gives advice as consultant to the White House Commission on Violence Against Women and Girls and the Department of Justice of Violence Against Women. He served as an international lecturer for the US State Department, most notably in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is very dear to my heart. Porter has also been a guest speaker at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. And I don't know if you've seen his TED Talk, but I urge you to go and see it. It's an amazing talk, and it's gone far and wide. George Lipsitz <laughs> is a professor of black studies and sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, the senior editor of Comparative and Relational Ethnic Studies, a journal. Um, it's called Calfu, is that right? Sure. Editor of Insubordinate Spaces series at Temple University Press. He was awarded the Angela Y. Davis Prize for Public Scholarship by American Studies Association. And he's the president and board of director of the African American Policy Forum. Um, Dallas Goldtooth, here he is, woo! Um, is, first of all, can we just take a moment to honor the amazing, profound, um, soul-giving work that Dallas has been doing at Standing Rock? And I, I have to say, I watch his videos regularly on Facebook, and the way you're telling the story is with such humanity and such humor, as well as such grace and dignity. So thank you for being that messenger. Um, he is of Dakota and Dean Ancestry, the National Keep It in the Ground campaign organizer for Indigenous Environmental Network, co-founder of the 1491's Comedy Group, and a digital media pr producer. A nationally known public speaker, activist, performer, and event MC, he's traveled widely across Turtle Island, AKA North America, sharing stories, entertainment, and knowledge. 
Luke Harris. Um, and I just want to say I have known Luke a really long time and been proud to call him my brother and my ally in this work. Tony and I and Luke go back a long ways. He is a professor of American politics and constitutional law at Vassar College and the co-founder of the African American Policy Forum with Kimberly Crenshaw, who I was talking with yesterday. The Policy Forum was developed as part of an ongoing effort to promote women's rights in the context of struggle for racial justice. He clerked for the late A. Leon Higginbottom Jr., the distinguished legal historian and former chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. He served for two years as a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Warwick School of Law in Coventry, England, and one year as a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Sociology, and for a couple years as junior associate in the litigation department at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett in New York City before beginning his teaching career at Vassar. An expert in the field of critical race theory, Luke has authored a series of important essays on questions of racial and gender equality in contemporary America, and was the co-writer and chief consultant for Cathay Sanders' 1993 award-winning documentary, A Question of Color. He is currently completing a book entitled The Meaning of Equality in Post-Apartheid America. So please welcome these amazing men. And I want everyone to know it was an intentional choice to have this panel with heterosexual men because we're really looking at the heterist, sexist, patriarchal dynamic. Um, there will be other panels where we'll bring in all kinds of different um, gender realities, but this is this particular panel. I think um, this panel is very timely right now as we see the escalation of severe patriarchal backlash in many forms. The rise of Trump and his sexual predatory surrogates, the collapse of Fox News with the reveal of a horrifically abusive culture, the uncovering of rape allegations against Brock Turner, who was convicted of raping a woman um, in college and after three months in prison was released, um, Bill Cosby, we can go down the list, the insane sexual and racist cyber abuse of Leslie Jones and others. This, of course, is all within a context of an empiric nation that has been at war for 222 years, which is 93% of our existence, with a history woven of the threads of genocide, of indigenous, slavery, ongoing oppression, murder, and the denigration of African Americans in a most terrifying rise of white supremacy. The statistics on violence against women remain mind-blowing with one out of three women on the planet who will be beaten or raped in their lifetimes. I can't honestly think of anything more important than deepening our understanding of toxic masculinity, rape culture, the intersection of race, colonialism, class, and sexism, and discovering the mechanisms and processes to bring about real change. When I spoke to Luke um, the other day, he said it's as if, there was a if this were a monopoly game, we are essentially at go. <laughs> I think one of the central questions of this panel is why are we still here at the beginning with men after so many years of after feminist liberation? And what will it take to catalyze not only men's interest in a liberatory process, but what will trigger that willingness to be equal or driving participants in that process? And some of the things we're gonna look at are how do we break out of the patriarchal container? What are the intersection issues we need to address? Have we made progress at all? 
What will be the thing that motivates men to change? How do we bring up our boys? I've said over and over that I never understood how violence against women ever became a woman's issue. <laughs> we actually aren't raping ourselves. Um, women took this on because we, first of all, are generous, but we also didn't believe men would do anything about it. Now a new time ha has to emerge where men make this the central issue of their lives and of our times. And I think this Trump moment, in my opinion, could be our tipping point moment. So how do we make it so? So let me begin by asking each of you, um, think back into your past. <laughs> what were you taught to believe a man is? And anyone can start. Tony Porter, why don't you jump in? I don't believe, uh, thank you, Eve, and hello, everybody. Glad to be here with y'all. I don't know if the conference has uh, a whole lot more women than men, but, and I'm making an assumption, nevertheless, as I look out, it appears to me there are a lot more women in this room than men. Why don't we do it? How many men are here? Raise your hand. That's pretty amazing. That's yeah. Cool. Thank you. That's cool, and I'm glad you're here. <laughs> But it's probably about three times more women, and, and, and they're here to, uh, you know, witness an experience around the socialization of men. And, and that continues to speak to the depth of the problem, mm -hmm. that, that women have such a deeper investment in the collective socialization of men than, than we as men, you know, our lack of interest. Uh, Hold it a little closer to your mouth. Our lack of interest, yeah, really, really supports just the dynamic that's in this room. Uh, it, you know, Eve, it's not like we sit down and, and get these lessons, these negotiated deals. It's not like we're sitting at a table and say, okay, this is manhood lesson 101. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen like that. So how you does know, it happen? <laughs> it just, you know, it, socialization starts at birth in many respects, you know, and, uh, and is woven throughout our lives in a whole host of ways. It's happening consciously, subconsciously. You know, in, in all of our experiences, it's not just our parents, it's society, it's, you know, it's coming in, in, in waves in every direction. Uh, so I, I can't sit down and give you like a lesson plan of when it actually happened for me. I, I can speak about moments in my life uh, where it was very impactful for me. Uh, you would hear it in my TED talk, one of the moments that were very impactful for me is, uh, I was 19, and, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an older teenager, but this is a moment that I can really pinpoint. Uh, my brother had died tragically, committed suicide. He was uh, schizophrenic. And uh, we were at the cemetery. I grew up in New York City, between Harlem and the Bronx. Uh, was at the cemetery way out on Long Island. That's about two and a half hours outside the city. Uh, and that's where he was buried. And we were waiting. Well, we had stopped at the restroom for preparing for the long ride back to the city. And all the women emptied out. My mom, my sisters, my aunt, they all emptied out of the limousine. And my dad and I stayed back. And uh, as soon as they got out, he burst out crying, right? And so this is a man 10 minutes ago had just buried his son, right? Which, 
I don't, I don't know what that's like. You know, and I have children and I just, I, I just can't imagine it. And uh, the thing about when we talk about manhood, he burst out crying. And he, he really didn't want to cry in front of me. But he knew he wasn't going to make it for the two and a half hour drive. And he definitely didn't want to cry in front of the women. And the thing that I remember the most is while he's crying, he's apologizing to me for crying in front of me. Uh, and actually applauding me in his own way for not crying. And uh, that's, that's been with me ever since, you know? That's been with me ever since, uh, this notion of men and their emotions. Uh, and, and our experiences, you know, with our emotions, hiding our emotions, not showing our emotions, not giving each other permission to experience our, our emotions. Uh, that experience with him has been a, a driving force in my work and, and just in the drive when I, when I think about manhood and masculinity. And you know, and, and, and what that experience was like for him, that he did not have permission to cry at that moment. And in some talks I have with men and women, I would ask folks in the room, how many of you have never seen your dad cry? And there would be a host of hands that would go up. And, and then I would bring them into my experience and I would say, if you only seen him cry once, please join the folks who have their hands up. And easily 50% of the room would have their hands up. How we as men are taught to suppress our, our feelings and emotions in defining our manhood. So that's a childhood experience that I remember. While I was an older teenager, it's one that really resonates with me before I began doing this work. How, um, first I wanted to say acknowledgments to the relatives of whose land we're on, our Miwok, Ohlone, Pomo relatives, and thank you for the opportunity for us to be here, each and every one of us as guests. Um, I'm a Dakota, 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 Himacha Do. I am a Dakota and Diné man, and I am uh, thankful to be here with each and every one of um, these scholars here. And I had to, you know, I had to dress form on top and party on the bottom. So, you know, keep it, keep it legit here. <laughs> Ceremony on top. There you go. See? Um, <laughs> for me, I, the, the, how this, my, the socialization process is very similar. I think that for a lot of us, it's, that resonates so much. That experience of, of, that of how, we, how men have expressed emotion. And I remember, for me, um, a similar story is, is my stepfather, who was a Vietnam vet, and it was the sound of him crying, and the sound of my mother comforting him in the other room. But I wasn't allowed to be in that space, not allowed, but I could hear the sound of him crying. And that was one of the few times I heard him. And it was his memories and that, that experience of Vietnam would always come forth. But for me, a lot of my socialization process, I would say, was actually through the eyes and the voices of women. The stories I would hear of my mother or my aunties, all oh, that goddamn man or that goddamn thing or the, or the sounds of violence from when my auntie and uncle would fight in the other room and the sound of crashing furniture. You know, the tear, uh, the, the sound of her crying, the, the, the expressions of joy and happiness, of 
when we would spend time around each other. Vividly for me, it's the attachment of the voice of my mother and my aunties and their relationship to men that was the biggest influence on me as a man. And I think that allowed me to a certain extent, obviously I gained a certain negative perception of what it meant, but then also I gained a certain sense, a strong sense of empathy for, for the emotion that was expressed. And growing up with a strong, with a culture in, in, a, in, a, in a world that really emphasizes the femininity, the, the essential feminine power of Mother Earth in our relations, I think that was really a guiding principle for me. But, uh, you know, it wasn't all healthy. I mean, obviously, I, from that experience and the things I saw and the trauma that I experienced, there was a lot of, that socialization process was a struggle for me as a man. Well, I think for uh, Tony and Dallas and Luke and other uh, men of color in this society, uh, masculinity has a slightly different uh, valence than it has for me as growing up as a, as a white male in this society. And I think that part of that has to do with an added pain of men of color being uh, encouraged to perform a certain kind of masculinity and then also having that be the, the most feared thing that the society uh, can imagine and having it constantly suppressed. And there's a pain there that I think white men don't know, but there is a perception and a pleasure uh, in communities of color, the strong womanist roles uh, that women play, which is, I think, slightly different than white feminism. And, uh, you know, when people's uh, uh, survival is at stake, uh, sometimes men and women are closer together, and that can open up more gender solidarity. But as Cornel West and Bell Hooks say, when you're closer together, you're sometimes at each other's throats, too. So the ways in which these things intersect with race are important. In my experience as a, as, as a white male, uh, the privileges of masculinity that taught me what masculinity is were often invisible. The expectations that my parents had of me that they didn't have of my sister, the encouragement that I got that my sister didn't got, the ways in which I could uh, read and see all kinds of images of uh, activity and agency that, that in some ways I could inhabit easily because of a gender and racial identity. And so those privileges were often invisible, but the prohibitions were very, very visible because toxic masculinity means you could never be masculine enough. And that's part of the uh, pathology of it, I think, in, in many ways. And so uh, the worst thing in my immediate experience with uh, my family, my friends, uh, the larger world, the worst thing you could be would be to be gay, to be a sissy. And you, you, you constantly have to um, work against that. And the second worst thing you could be would be to be like a girl or to be like a woman. And so you learn in a negative, you learn what you are by what you're told not to be. And this, of course, creates a certain kind of masquerade because you're, you're putting on a you that's not you and you're performing a certain kind of identity, not so much out of the massive privileges you have, but as a sense of feeling incredibly uh, threatened, uh, inadequate, unable uh, to deal with these things uh, on the way that you're supposed to. And it's, it's not just that you, you, you can't cry, you can't talk a certain way, you can't read certain things, you can't like certain kinds of music, you have to have certain kinds of performance with, with girls that you're expected to know how to do. And all of this, you know, produces 
uh, a way in which you don't know yourself. And if you're a false subject that doesn't know yourself, you often need a false object. You need something to uh, act, act against and act upon. And in the very normative nuclear family in which I was raised, uh, domesticity, the realm of women, came to look like a realm of uh, conformity, of uh, knuckling under, of lack of imagination, of obedience. And so I and, and my friends could imagine that freedom from that was getting away from domesticity, getting away from women. And so we were taught a contempt and I think a hatred of our, our, our mothers, not knowing uh, that our mothers had been intelligent women whose choices were deeply constrained and therefore they put everything into families they resented. And when we saw those resentments, uh, we blamed them because we didn't see the bigger structure. And, and that, that's the final part of this, that you've asked us to talk from personal experiences. Uh, Dallas uh, talks about we're, you know, we're on the land of the Central Coast Miwok, you know, that we all inherit a history of incredible violence, brutality, conquest that has everything to do with masculinity. And as the, you know, the Billie Holiday song says, if there's blood at the leaves, it's because there's blood at the root. And that's true not only for histories of nations, but it's true for individuals as well. That be, basically men come into the world with images of, of violence, brutality, uh, of uh, a domination, of supremacy. And those things are so deeply ingrained in you, I think you don't even know that they're there. They're just the air that you breathe. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, I, you know, growing up, uh, I think I learned a lot of lessons about what it meant, what it meant to be a man. Not many of them were very good. I uh, didn't have uh, a close relationship with uh, either of the men that I call my two fathers, but I... But what I learned was uh, was a very kind of macho conception of what it was to be a man, and 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 uh, and you were supposed to be in control, and and we got these lessons in it, we got these lessons in my family uh, very early. Um, I remember when uh, my biological father uh, took my brother and I. I was it's, it's the only thing to tell you the truth that I remember uh, happening to me when I was uh, five years old. Um, he took me and my brother to uh, a local outdoor bar, and, uh, and he ordered two double scotches. So my brother and I, we'd never had a double scotch before. <laughs> so we were like, what is this, right? And, my, you know, my, biologic, my, my biological father was, was, was kind, of a, kind of a hoodlum type. And so the bartender, it seemed to me, even as a little kid, was really afraid of him, right? So he, he left those drinks there. And, uh, and he took out uh, a dollar bill. I was born in 1950, this is like 1955, and so, you know, a dollar bill to me in those days, that was magic, because that was 200 pieces of candy. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I'm gonna, so I reached out, I walked towards my dad to, to the other end of the bar to, to get the dollar. And as I'm reaching out, he hits me in my stomach harder than I've ever been hit before, so it's the first time in my life that the wind's been knocked out of me, so I'm, thinking I'm dying, lying on the floor, rolling over, watching my brother who's four drink his first double scotch, right? And, and for me, you know, you know, he was teaching me about what it meant to be tough, right? Uh, I, mean, I remember as I was rolling over on the floor, he said, Joe, just remember, nobody gives you anything 
for nothing, right? And so, you know, I learned these lessons about macho. I learned these lessons about being tough. Uh, I learned these lessons within the context of being born at the tail end of American apartheid in the United States. And I learned them within the context of a vision of racial justice that was very patriarchal uh, in, in nature. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean that uh, I grew up you know, a move from a black boy to a black man thinking that there was a real racial crisis in the United States, but at the heart of that crisis was singularly black men, right? That we, that racism affected us in a way that it didn't affect uh, black women and girls, not to say that things were easy for them, but things were more difficult for me. Right, so I grew up, uh, I would say this, with a notion of manhood that uh, represented a vision of racial justice that really didn't touch the lives of, uh, of the women, right, who actually, allowed me to thrive in life. And that's, that's something I'm gonna talk about as we move forward, uh, what it means to, to have a vision of racial justice that doesn't really embrace an intersectional perspective, that doesn't really embrace uh, uh, gender, class, sex, sexuality, and all these things. Uh, and all these things are things that I had to learn as I moved into middle age, because uh, as a young person and even as a young progressive, I had a, I had a politics that was deeply influenced by by patriarchy, right? And by a vision of manhood that was really a bastardization of any kind of a vision of masculinity that would be healthy. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So something I know about all of you is that you changed. You were men who were brought up with a certain conditioning and something in you got you to get that might not be a good thing, right? So I would like to know, like, what, and, 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 and as George has said when we were having a pre-discussion about this, because one of the things that Tony brought up, when he'll brought, bring up later, when I said, like, what is the hardest thing to give up about your training about being a man, Tony said vulnerability, and I really want to get into that. And I said to George, well, when did that, you know, when was the first moment when you realized that? And he said, what will between the age of the grade of one to 10 with, you know, every single day of my life, you know? And I think, so I know there's not one particular moment, but I really want to know, because I think it's so critical to talk about what was the mechanism, what happened to you that got you to be a different kind of man, that got you on the journey to understand that the way it was set up wasn't the way to go. And anyone can jump in on this. I, I'll, I'll go first, I guess. I, there was, there's two things that come to mind. Um, the first one was I was in 11th grade, or 11th grade, um, right before the summer right before it, and my mom handed me a book. And the book is called Wounded Warriors. And it was a book that she's in. It's featuring stories, I think, of 18 different stories of, of survivors, of stories of wounded warriors, of those that have gone through... Um, acts of child uh, trauma, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, uh, and she was in it. And she sat us all down and said, I want to give you guys this book. Like, this is my childhood, this is what I have, and, and what's in here is what I have in here every day of my life. And I want you to read it. And she made each and every one of us read that book, uh, the, the story and her story. And it was a painful story, you know, a lot of trauma that 
in that moment, I'm, I read that and I come to her and I was crying and I, I just stopped and looked at her because um, that when, who I read in that story, had I not known my mother, the sum, the, 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 the sum of all those parts of that story didn't match with this beautiful, strong woman in front of me that was entirely positive looking ahead. And it was the result of that experience. And I, I went off to uh, a, a native a boarding school at that, after that, a native boarding school. And I carried that with me. That, that was like a significant shift in my entire perception. Because at the core of that story was trauma and pain inflicted by men, by my grandfather, by uh, uncles, by people that, that loved and cared are supposed to love and care and it forced me to be to re-examine how I relate to other men and other and other my, my female relatives and um, the the that carried forward to my second the moment I went to uh, I went to UC Berkeley I went to Cal and uh, I go Bears um, and I remember the first day at uh, at the, the campus there. It was a trip. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm straight. I come from the country where, like, we call it South Central Minnesota to try to seem like we're hard, but it's just cornfields, <laughs> right? Like, like, straight up country. And all I know is, like, we're, we're just a, a, a dash of pepper and a sea of salt of farmers and um, just a bunch of native folks. And so I was going through just straight cultural, like, whoa, what's going on here? of trying to figure out everything, and I'm in the heart of Berkeley. And, um, and I'm like, why is that man yelling on that stairwell? Why is he yelling over there? There's a lot of people yelling here with weird hair. <laughs> Welcome to Berkeley. Um, but um, I, there was a, something I did that I really wasn't aware, and actually I look back and I'm, I'm proud I wasn't aware of it. Because automatically when I step into a room and there's a lot of like, other organizers, people of color, and a lot of women of color, I would like do this thing where I'd be like super nice and super like exaggerated nice because something in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm a big person, I'm a big man, and I automatically know that I could be a trigger just walking into the room. Just walking into that space, I knew that there was a sense of caution that went over my head. And so I automatically be like, hey, how's it going? Like super goofy, weird. And that's what people knew me as. Oh, that's a weird, goofy Indian guy. <laughs> and it took me a while to really process like where that was coming from because I was so self-conscious about how I interacted with my female relatives and to where I carried that with me. And I really go back to the story of my mother who was never afraid who was, I'm sure she was afraid and terrified to pass that on to her children. But for her, that was like one of the greatest gifts that she could give, was saying, read this, because this is who I am, even to this day. I'd say there are two things that were... Um, critical in changing my attitude. One was working with uh, Kimberly Crenshaw on Anita Hill's support team. 
um, in opposition to Clarence Thomas, who I went to law school with. Uh, and uh, I did not want to see that guy on the Supreme Court. It was a really disturbing um, um, uh, phenomenon, though, to be on her support team and to see uh, how much support Clarence Thomas had in the African-American community. And to see that, uh, you know, from the beginning of his nomination, he had the majority of the uh, black people supporting him, even though he had a politics that was as far right wing as you can believe. And when Anita Hill came forward, his support in the black community actually went up. It went up to about 78%. And so that, you know, that, it, it, it made me think. Now remember, remember who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Luke Harris. So I was not like a black feminist when I was thinking this, but this just didn't seem right to me. Right, and, and you know, it was around that time that I met, uh, that I met Kim, and I shared with her um, some stories about, about growing up. And so she used to listen to me wax what I thought was eloquent about the endangered black male. And, the, and so I would, you know, tell these stories. I'd be like, you know, you know, you know, black men, we're at the center of this, we're at the center of that, and, you know, we're more endangered than, than, than black women. And, and so I, I, remember she, I remember one day she, she asked me, she said, you know, didn't you tell me that you were raised by a great aunt who uh, left school when she was 15 in fifth grade as a sharecropper in Florida and worked as a domestic for 50 years? And I said, yeah, 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 I did tell you that. She says, well, wouldn't you say that she's in danger? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you got a point. She said, didn't you tell me that, uh, that your biological mother, uh, you know, got involved in the underground economy, became a heroin addict, uh, was a prostitute for, uh, worked as a prostitute for a, a long time in her life? Um, when you say um, she was an endangered black person. And I said, well, yeah. She said, well, so now where are they in your politics? You know, so I went to look, right, at my vision of racial justice uh, to see where they were. And, and I realized that I, I couldn't find them, right? They certainly weren't at the center. And it would be a lie for me to say that, I, that they were really on the periphery, right? They were out of sight, out of mind. And I realized, you know, you know, for me, becoming a, uh, someone who identifies as a black male feminist, it was a really humbling experience because you realize that you have a politics that you think is progressive that's not even wrapped around the people that you think you most love, right? So here I was, uh, super concerned about absent black fathers, but not at all concerned about the lived experience of, of an endangered black woman that I grew up around. I didn't have to go to college to read about endangered black women, I was raised by them, I was birthed by them, right? But what I learned was that, you know, look, if you don't have a vision, right, if you don't have a prism through which to look at the world that actually embraces all the things that are important, and if we're talking about these issues, that, that, that means a feminist vision of color, then you're not gonna see what's right in front of you, right? right? And that's why that there, there are a lot of black men in prison right now for killing the abuser of their mother who aren't feminists. Right. Because we don't have a prism, we weren't introduced to a prism to even understand what we saw growing up, right? Uh, but it was those two things and that kind of interrogation that turned me around because once you have that prism, I feel you can't go back because you see things you didn't see before. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, I, I, I so appreciate that. I so appreciate that. I, uh, I was doing a tremendous amount of work about 25, 30 years ago around undoing racism. Uh, looking at particularly communities of color, particularly African-American communities. I'm from New York. We're doing a lot of work around repealing Governor Rockefeller's drug laws, you know, the mass incarceration of men in New York State, particularly black men, uh, and really challenging that and, and, and strategizing around that. I became very invested and well-versed in my experience and, and teachings around undoing racism. And it, it was interesting, too, because uh, well, at that time, women then began, you know, when you're doing, when you're invested in any form of group oppression work and ending it, you know, you'll find yourselves in rooms with folks who are looking at other forms of group oppression. So I would find myself in rooms with women who were looking at what I call undoing sexism. Something's purposely done can be undone. Uh, and women would begin to challenge me on my sexism. And at that time, it was particularly white women. And, and my, my, my thing was like, here I am, doing some good work. And here they come. <laughs> right? And, uh, and thank God for them that they, you know, they seen something in me and stayed at the table with me. But when I, when I caught the vision, it was because of this, this white dude I used to work with named Mike Leathers from Mississippi, son of a preacher. And uh, Mike and I would do undoing racism training together and work together. And when Mike would speak, first of all, he's speaking about everything I taught him, right? but then he would personalize it, and that was the difference. He would take the analysis that he was learning, and then he would just be as transparent as he possibly could. And when Mike, so white man, white Southern man, exposing racism the way he would do, you know, it would chill a room out. I've, I really have seen, I've seen white men well, most white men simply say racism is bad, right? It's wrong. You have many white women who will go a little deeper than that, right? <laughs> but Mike would not intellectualize it and, and just be able to have an hour-long conversation with you around the constructs of racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mike would talk about what happens at his kitchen table at home. Mike would talk about conversations amongst his uncles. Mike would talk about how racism played out in his house. Mike would talk about his sister who was a professor at a college, but at dinner in the evening, the N-word was coming out of her mouth like it was nothing to it while she's teaching black students on a day-to-day -day basis. So he would like really, really give it up. And it, it was watching Mike and the impact he had on exposing racism in a way I had never seen a white man do it before. And I know some white men who are very, very well versed about talking about it, but they ain't talk about what their daddy taught them. Or they don't talk about what their mother used to say. You know what I mean? They don't go there. They don't give it up like that. And uh, so what came to me was the work that Mike does as a member of the dominating group, 
talking about racism. I could do that in respect to ending sexism. I can, you know, so before we had gotten to a place where men were involved in prevention work and, 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 and in that respect, it just showed an opportunity. And, and like, like Luke, it was my experiences living in a race construct as a black man. I knew what that meant, what that felt like. And so I was able to flip that around and say, you know what? I could really, really do some good. I became really attracted to this work, but it was really through a race lens that is what really attracted me. And, uh, and it was that tremendous urging and patience and tolerance from women, you know, at what the end of the day. What opened your heart? What was the thing that opened your heart? That opened my heart. Mm. You know, some of the things that have opened, opened my heart is really looking at, and this is not really looking at the experience and the impact that sexism has on women, which we know is at epidemic proportion, we know is the guiding force of, of violence against women, you know, that they experience like, you know, it's right up there alongside of cancer and heart disease. And, but what also has, has, has galvanized me is looking at what male domination does to men, looking at what it does to boys. You know what I mean? The, the inability to be authentic, to de define manhood, George was talking about this in his own way, to define manhood by distancing ourselves from the experience of women and girls. That's how we define what it means to be a man for all practical purposes. Women live so much closer to how we would define humanity, right? Humanity is, breathes in, in women's experiences and how you know, they embrace life. We're distancing ourselves from them to define manhood, so we are so robbed of humanity. You know, uh, I remember talking to a boy, a little boy, uh, about this man box, this collective socialization, and asking him, you know, if he didn't live with this box, you know, what would life be like for him? And a little boy says to me, I would be free. You know, the, the understanding of being held hostage as men, being robbed of our authentic selves. So as much as I'm invested in ending violence against women and girls for valuing and, and safety for women, I'm in it for men too, you know? And as a man, that personally touches me, you know? When we can't ask for help, we can't accept help, we can't offer help, you know what I mean? The, the way we live as men, the rigidity that we live in, the boxes that we live in and our quest to be loved, not even loved, because we don't want to be loved by each other, but appreciated and respected and feared by each other, right? Uh, just this issue of authenticity, you know, is it, just killing us as men. It is, it's it is. Us. It's beautiful, wow. wow. I think with uh, each of us, you know, we started out talking about uh, personal experiences. And when we talked about that moment of changing, it was for each of us uh, in the context of political social movements that made us rethink issues of sameness and difference. And so Eve, when you posed the question, and you posed the question as when did your heart open, I think my eyes had to open before my heart could. That there were things I didn't see until uh, political contestation brought them uh, to my attention. Um, 
my, my father was a, a gentle, generous person. He didn't conform to a, uh, a stereotype of masculinity. Uh, but deep down, there was a sense of uh, competitiveness, of supremacy, of um, wanting to act on the world rather than letting it act on you that conveyed an under a narrow understanding of masculinity to me. My father died when I was in high school, and that left me in a household of my mother, my sister, and a strong presence of my grandmother. So in many ways, I was in a household made possible by the activity of women. So the, all of my conversations within my family were with women. Um, and that was something that um, didn't, I didn't have the moment that, that Luke had later, didn't realize what that was doing for me, how that was helping me. And in some ways that was giving me models and ways of behaving that uh, you know, wouldn't have happened had my father been around. You have all this discourse bemoaning the absent father, but in, in some of the people who bemoan that, like Barack Obama and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, were actually raised by single mothers and helped greatly by having a strong woman you know, in, in presence in their lives as a model of behavior. But when my father died, my mother became very depressed, very bitter. My sister went away to college. And so I, I was kind of uh, on my own. And it was the civil rights movement that in many ways pulled me in to a different way of being. So I'm sitting there in Atlantic City, New Jersey in August of 1964 on the boardwalk where the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party has come to demand representation in the convention for the only democratically elected slate, which was an integrated but mostly black slate that was not allowed into the convention, not recognized by the state Democratic Party. And I'm sitting there and one of the speakers is Fannie Lou Hamer. And Fannie Lou Hamer says, you know, the, there's only three weeks where it's hard to be black in Mississippi. And I'm thinking, only three weeks? You say, yeah, this week, last week, and next week. <laughs> and Ella Baker spoke. And the Ladner sisters spoke. Dory and Joyce Ladner, who had been working by themselves in this isolated area of southwest Mississippi. And as they spoke, this spoke to me in a way that very little in my background in my past had. It was a way of, it was funny, it was intelligent, it was incisive, it was ferociously self-active. Didn't, you didn't think that they were better than anybody else, but nobody was better than them. And this invited me into a way of being that seemed to speak to me in a way that nothing that I had been raised in did. And in fact, it, it, I felt in, in a way, thinking of, of Tony's, that, that I was freed from a certain uh, middle-class uh, dictatorship of how people could be. And seeing people with these different roles opened that up to me. And, and, that, and that continued uh, in, in activism, that we would see people like uh, Pearlie Evans uh, in a social worker in St. Louis who would bring uh, black women to City Hall and uh, talk about a housing shortage or talking about the hunger of their children. And you could see that they were determined to love their children and themselves to the exact dimension and degree that this society despised them. And this taught me something about love that, that you don't learn from a Hallmark card, you don't learn from an after-school special. It's, a, it's a, you know, a deeply political love in the face of the, uh, the ultimate in political evil. And it was an awful thing that produced it. But what it was was so stunning that it called me into being a different kind of person. Now, I think we can overrate 
that moment because you make it seem as if it's a once and for all change and you're cool from then on. And of course it requires constant um, calling out and hectoring and observing uh, things that women would see that, that I wouldn't see and people who were patient and kind with me and willing to uh, uh, critique, but also to ferociously oppose um, male chauvinism, to come into political groups and say, no, you know, men aren't going to be the speakers and women aren't going to make the coffee and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, there isn't one way to argue, there isn't one way to do things, that uh, the framing of issues that makes you feel militant makes us think you're only dogmatic. And so a different kind of thing brought in by second wave feminism, an accident of history in a way, that helped us see a different kind of possibility. And I think for the most part, now the, the women involved might remember it differently, but I remember it as, as mostly liberating, as mostly uh, a, a way of being uh, that was better than what we were being socialized and conditioned to be. Beautiful, beautiful. I think, I think, and I'd love everybody to join in this. I mean, one of the things I've always been, I've thought a lot about is what you talk a lot about the man box. You know, there's a man code, there's a way of men are told to behave in groups and tribes and, you know, in the, and I, I'm not even going to the locker room because that's now been tainted. Um, but like where, where the pressure of being a man, right? How you're supposed to behave is very hard to break out of. And, and I really, I think men need support right? Men need ways to do that. So I'd like to just talk a little bit of that. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about the framework of the man box so that we can then jump in and talk about like how you each deal with situations where the dominant male energy and, and to be accepted and to be one of is pushing you one way and your instincts know you have to go another way and what that's, what that's all about. Yeah, so when we talk about this man box, we're, we're talking about the collective socialization of manhood. Uh, so much of how we're taught what it means to be a man. It doesn't mean that we all do the same exact thing, but it, it does mean that we all get that basic foundation in many respects across cultural groups as, as well. Uh, it teaches us some of the things that's been said here. Men are tough, men are strong, men are aggressive, men are dominating. You know what I mean? We don't... Uh, we have feelings, but we don't talk about feelings. We don't share feelings with the exception of anger. You know, we don't do weakness. And all of that we see as women, you know, uh, which is always very interesting because when you talk about strength, men are strong, we're really just talking about muscles at the end of the day. Because, you know, I, <laughs> because the truth of the matter is, I've heard every man on this uh, stage already mentioned that it was the strength in women that's created the men of integrity that Got they it. are, you know? And, and, and we can all give a testimony. And I'm not saying that we haven't had positive men in our lives, but, you know, when I, when I talk to men about the strength of women in their lives, when they really allow themselves to stop thinking about strong, meaning muscles, and start <laughs> really thinking about integrity, resiliency, the ability to stick and stay, that I got you no matter what kind of love, you know what I mean? That, that serious, I got you, you don't have to worry about it kind of love. There's some serious strength in that. And when I talk to men, men of character, high character, of integrity, well-accomplished men, men that are holding it down, in many of the traditional ways we define manhood, they will tell you at the root of that was the love and strength of a woman. 
more so, not, you know, I'm not absolute, nothing's absolute, but more so than a man. So we, we have this box, and, and so much as, as the men were saying, this box teaches us as men to distance ourselves from the experience of women and girls in defining what it means to be a man. And then to your question, something that I, I see that happens, to effectively distance ourselves, we have to develop a lack of interest. See, yeah. you can't be interested and distance yourself at the same time, right? Then our boys get to a certain age where we give them permission to be interested, and that's usually just in sexual conquest. It's not in relationships, because that's too much interest, right? It's sexual conquest. And again, there's no absolutes here, but for so, for so many of us, that's the experience we grow up in, having a distance in ourselves to define what it means to be a man and perfecting a lack of interest so we can effectively distance ourselves, you know? And then we travel with that throughout man for many of us. Many of us get pretty old before we get mature enough to let a lot of that go. And so during those years when we could be most impactful and have most influence in society, we're kind of stuck in that box. And many of us get tired of the box too. But there's a fear of each other to really live outside of it. You know, when you talk about being a real man and, and men who are part of being a man is, is having no fear, this is an area where in many respects we're petrified. You know, uh, we're socialized, I heard the men here mention it, we're socialized to have less value in women, right? We, we will put our gay brothers in that same place, and then we go about our business every day on, we're always on, you know, in our quest to be seen and viewed and, and defined as these rigid, rigid notion of manhood, like leaving little to no space to be our authentic selves. You know, to just live and be and free and just be authentic self. So it, it's, it's definitely a mechanism that is not only creating an epidemic of violence against women and girls, you know, but it's killing us as men too. Anybody jump in? Yeah. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think that it's also it's a mechanism that fosters this inability or lack of interest to, to, to build in these type sense of emotional intelligence as, as young men, as human beings, this sense of, of one, a self-control, but also self-evaluation of understanding, you know, who I am and why am I doing this? Because you go down that path, it opens up a whole box of other things that you start you start opening, your mind opens up, and I think that's, the, that's what happens. That's the experience I hear here. This is the experience I felt, is I start open, asking myself, why am I doing this? Well, talk more about that lack of uh, emotional intelligence. The, 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 the sense of, of being aware of who you are as a human being and, and the, 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 the inability for you to, to self-evaluate the... the, the the intention of your actions and the fear that, 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 that there's a certain wall that we as men were educated that you get to a certain border, you get to the wall, the, the wall of the box, there's a trigger of fear, of insecurity that we know we're not supposed to cross. Um, there's that, you get, you, you, 
you know, there's, there's boundaries that we are taught that you get awkward. Oh, this is awkward. I don't want to go there. Um, I don't want to talk about this. Let's not talk. Let's talk about this later. That's the, uh, we've been stunted. Our, our, our ability to grow intelligently about our, our self-evaluation as men has been stunted because of this education process of society. And for me as, 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 a, as a person, I think that as a man, I really have to challenge myself, continuously challenge myself. I'm pushing myself for that, that to, to regain, to relearn that intelligence, that emotional intelligence as a, as a human being, as a man. And, you know, there's a moment that we talk about, the, the, that heart moment, that emotional moment for me. Really, what this, the second coming of that was when I had my first daughter. Hmm. And having my, my fiance and talking to my daughter and looking and knowing I worked in the field, knowing the statistics and knowing the reality is my daughter has a one in three chance of being sexually assaulted. Mm. My two other daughters, my stepdaughters have that opportunity. My partner has been sexually assaulted. Like this is how that, that made it so direct for me and, and, and so passionate. And then I have a son. So then there's that other aspect of the education of my son and how do I relate to him now? How do I create this relationship to where I show him that there is no boundaries for the growth of your self-confidence and your ability to love yourself as a man and not be afraid to express that? Terrific. Uh, the things that Tony and Dallas say there uh, send me back to Eve's question about you know, why sexual assault is thought of as a woman's issue instead of as a man's issue. And why is it that men are so unfeeling, uh, unnoticing of this, and yet so preoccupied with minor wounds and slights to their aspirations? And I think that this is maybe brings us to a point that the toxic masculinity we're talking about isn't about your, your chromosomes, it's not about your uh, your sex organs, it's about kind of selfishness. It's about teaching, uh, as Tony says, you want to be interesting, but you don't want to be interested in somebody else. You want to be loved, but you don't necessarily want to love somebody else. And this is, you know, it has other sources other than gender, that capitalism does this, and racial supremacy does it, and, um, you know, every religion of the world thinking it's better than every other religion in the world, you know, pr probably teaches this uh, as well. But I think that, um, you know, Oscar Romero, the great archbishop in El Salvador, asked the same question about the poor constantly asked, why is it that the rich are so oblivious to the suffering that's going on around them and that they benefit from? And Romero says that, you know, as hard as you might try, as much as your eyes and heart might be open, if you are the beneficiary of these things, you can't see it in the same way. But you can try to unlearn, you can accompany, you can walk down the road with other people, and you could try to negotiate with them and see how they can change you and you can change them. If you're taught to play a musical instrument in, in, in a jazz band, uh, you can't win every encounter. You actually have to listen to what other people are playing. And you have to respond to what they're, they're playing. And you have to see when's the time for you to hold back and let somebody else shine, and when's the time, and maybe you're keeping, a st you're keeping a steady beat in the pocket, and they're having their solo, and then it'll switch, and then you know, they'll, 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 they'll lay back, and, and you'll have your solo. 
This is how good music is made. This is how lovemaking, ideally, you know, should go on. But it has no place in the, the, the grandiose aspirations of masculinity, uh, which are all about a kind of one-sided, not a reciprocal, you know, relationship among people. And I think, you know, the same instrumentalism uh, that makes men see women as objects either for sexual pleasure or to make them heroes or to have somebody to push lower so that they feel higher, it's the same instrumentalism that makes nature uh, seen as simply a tool of, uh, of human wealth gaining. You know, there's no reciprocity there either. And so I think that, you know, there's a particular disease connected to masculinity here uh, around that selfishness, but it's a broader social warrant. It won't be ended just by working on ourselves, our gendered selves, but if we don't work on our gendered selves, it remain, it's made to seem natural, necessary, and inevitable. You know, I know you're going to, I know you're going to answer, but I think if you could also address, like, w one of the questions we were, we're going to get to is like, what's the hardest thing to give up about the training of being a man? And you were saying when we had this pre-discussion, and I think picking up on what George said, is the kind of learned uh, objectification of women, right? The learn, it's cellular. It, become, it comes into you early so that it's so programmed into you that what then begins to turn you on, literally, is that objectification. And I think, to me, that unweaving, that untangling, is, is so core and critical. So maybe you could also weave that into what you were gonna say. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you know, I, I was gonna say that, uh, you know, the thing with the man box is that uh, you can't underestimate how hard it is to get out of that box even mm -hmm. when you want to. Um, you know, you're a young person growing up um, in a fiercely heterosexist society being, what does it mean to be authentic about what your sexuality is when lots of doors are closed? I mean, you, you know, the pathway to authenticity is a really difficult one to find. You know, um, how do you unlearn the, the sexual objectification of women? That's like a lifelong chore. I mean, it's not like one day you can get up and just say, I'm going to stop that. Yeah. Even when you realize that that's not the way to go. Um, so I, I really don't have an answer, but but I do want to 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 say that that you really you can't underestimate how difficult it is to get out of that box, and that I don't think any of us ever fully get out of it. That it's a lifelong day-to-day -day journey, and that the, and that what represents integrity is staying on that path. Uh, I, I think that there, there's something that was in the words that we're sharing that also, I don't know if it takes in a different direction, but it just adds to it that this box that we speak of is also, uh, you know, we all understand it's a, it's a box that belongs to a larger system, a systemic issue. And that it's the same, and we talked about the land, there was a brief comment about the land, and that's part to play in this. And it has a critical part to play that cannot be forgotten that the land itself is the first body that, is, that has been attacked, that has been plundered or raped. And that it is a consequence of a systemic issue that is much larger than anything that is the, the beast of it all, which is exploitation as a result of capitalism and colonialism. And that 
we, that the, what happens to the land as, as the feminine embodiment of the, uh, of the spiritual essence of Mother Earth is also a result of what we see what happened to our women and into our young ones is that they are one and the same of the part of the same system and that we are replicating this box on a much larger as, as a society that is patriarchal at the core that is misogynistic at the core because the only way we are taught to relate to the world is that, is, is that we are to dominate the land itself and so that we have to be able to speak to that greater the greater struggle which is the struggle against capitalism and globalization and colonization. And that's something very real, especially to our indigenous brothers and sisters and a lot of communities of color who are going through that process. And I just, that was something that you had shared about that I wanted to put out there. Yeah, beautiful. Can I say a couple of quick things? There's a couple of things that came to my mind from actually from each of the men when George was speaking. This issue of, uh, Interest. We uh, was talking about interest as, as we're defining manhood, the distance ourselves, experience of women and girls requires us to develop a lack of interest. There's another piece about interest, uh, and I see it within all dominating groups. Uh, we live in the United States of America, you know, that's, that's built on group oppression. This construct, this country of ours is, is a construct and it's a purposeful construct. And in, in the fabric of its design is really identifying and solidifying legitimate access to resources for those who best fit in to this construct uh, or who this construct was designed for. And what I find is that you will have a lack of, like, so for example, let me just give an example of it instead of trying to explain it, is that, if we're talking about white folks, right? White folks in the United States of America, it is not required for them to have an interest in the experience of people of color for their own survival. Their survival is not based on that, right? So if they have an interest in the experience of women of, of people of color, it's because they choose to, right? While people of color have to have an investment in the experience of white folks, we have to understand them. We have to study them in our own ways, consciously and subconsciously. Study them. So much of our survival is understanding, if you're a person of color, is understanding white folks in this construct called the United States of America. And the same way with women. Women understand men in a much more in-depth way than men understand women. You know. Now, we as men have given that names, you know what I mean? We, we, we find inappropriate names to define that. She's nosy, she's always in my business, push my button. Well, oh, you know, we got all kinds of things we say. But the truth of the matter is, her survival requires that she understands men, you know, in a way. And it makes sense that more men, this, this, this topic that we're here to talk about is about the male code, and there's more women in here than men. Right? If we were talking about white supremacy, there'd be more black and brown people in here by and large than white folks, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If we was talking about challenging heterosexism, well, you would expect that the room to be full of heterosexist people, right? No, that they would be more probably gay, lesbian, bi, trans, gender non-conforming folks would be here front and center, right? And so, I, even when we talk about interest, it, it takes me there. I, I just wanted to mention that. And then to your point about uh, 
the objectification of women. And I, I'm, I'm totally connected to what Luke was sharing. Uh, it is a challenge for men, for many of us, not all men, but, but for many of us is a challenge uh, because of the teaching when we're, when we're finally allowed, and again, no absolutes, but when we're finally allowed to have interest in the experience of girls without our manhood being questioned, it's about sexual conquest, right? It's not about what she thinks, how she feels, what she knows, what I can learn from her, her world, her humanity. No, it's about sexual conquest, you know, and that's put in place early on. And, and a lot of it is not just necessarily about objectification. That, that, that sounds just too abstract for me. A big part of it is what I like to call body parts, right? When we see women, when we're objectifying women, looking at women, I'd rather say we're looking at body parts. And because then that helps me to really understand is, you know, it's, it's more than objectification, it's dehumanizing. You know, because they're not people then, they're, you know what I mean? And, 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 I'm not saying it's like I got it all together. I do it, right? We see parts. Maybe the difference for we as men up here is we do it and we say, stop doing that. You know what I mean? Most of the time. Yeah, 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 right. You know, we'll challenge ourselves. Well, other men might be on remote control, you know, but we don't get no pass like we all that because we're not. And men mentioned earlier, we're on our own journey with this, but I, we reduce women to a set of parts, right? And that's where that dehumanization really gets the playground, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think this is so important, and um, I, I'm not sure that getting rid of or suppressing a part of ourselves that uh, in this light is seen as embarrassing is, is the right solution. I think you need to recognize that these things are in you, that they're very deep. And then the question becomes what you, you do with them. Uh, Ozzie Davis used to say, um, in relation to sexual desire, he said, if you weren't madly in love with Lena Horne, you ought to call your doctor, because there's something really wrong with you, you know? <laughs> Something's not working there. And the problem is that that erotic desire becomes totally separate from filial love uh, between friends, uh, familial love between uh, mother, uh, f parents and children, uh, from agape, a disinterested love of social justice. In other words, erotic love ought to have a place in the world. But we've perverted it by these binaries. We've, we first of all extracted it from other kinds of love. And really, I think a lot of sexual objectification is very sex negative. It's not pleasure oriented. It's really about something else. It's about power, it's about domination, it's about sadism in search of a story, it's about a grandiose uh, desire um, to, as I said before, to transform someone in, into an instrument. So, and, I, and I think these things, you know, um, rather than working to suppress them or to deny them, we might think about how could we reconfigure them? How could we uh, make those investments be distributed in a different kind of way? One of the innovations, I think, of queer theory has been to 
stop a binary heterosexual opposition in which the world is all male and female. And they say, well, there are points on a continuum. There are many different uh, things that are hidden under these terms, male and female. And if we keep going back just to those binaries, we're always going to wind up to in, in, in a bad place. And I think that for those of us um, who've dealt with these issues, often we're able to imagine uh, that sexual desire, as we understand it, not to be gone from the world, but to be a fuel to something else, that there's an erotic energy behind social movements. There's an erotic energy behind the laughter that we have when we uh, come together, when we dance, when we, we, when we play music together, when we learn to feel, when we sing in a chorus and we feel other people's voices. This is not unrelated to the somatic pleasures of, uh, of sensuality. And uh, I, I, don't th I think suppressing them gets us in the wrong direction. But channeling them elsewhere matters, and, and for me, uh, you know, the great Ella Baker used to say, if you've got a problem, the solution is find somebody who's doing something and help them. And the solution isn't within you. The solution is connecting to, to somebody else. So on this particular issue, Luke and I work with the African American Policy Forum. We're in an organization founded uh, by an executive director uh, uh, who's, who's, who's a woman of color theorist. And everything we do says gender justice and racial justice have to come together. In New Orleans, there's an advanced writing project for 11th and 12th graders called Students at the Center. These young, uh, to me, they're boys and girls. We probably ought to think of them as men and women or as, 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 as righteous people in, in, in whatever gender uh, identity they have. They've written a book called Men We Love, Men We Hate about the role of masculinity in their lives and their mixed feelings about the messages that masculinity has sent to them. And some of it is rough and ungainly and contradictory, but they're working through these things. And you, know, you can download that book, you can teach it in your classes, you can give it to your friends, you can write to them in New Orleans and think, you know, say your, your comments about gender made me think about something else. And then we could have a conversation that class and racial and regional segregation usually doesn't let us have. Uh, I work with Asian Immigrant Women Advocates, a group uh, headed by Young Shin, uh, designed to promote the long-term capacity for leadership by low-wage, limited English-speaking immigrant women workers, who turn out not only to just want to have different people in leadership positions, they have a totally different understanding of what leadership is. And they have an understanding of what language is that I never understood until I met with people who had limited English uh, capacity. I didn't realize how dictatorial it was. And in those organizations, they have a group called Youth Build Immigrant Power in which their sons and daughters uh, rally around uh, immigrant mothers who are working in the garment industry, the electronics industry, Around, around issues of gender justice, but much more, you know, also connected to other things. And in the course of that, they create new gender roles. It's not that you can sit and theorize them or imagine them. They have to be worked out in practice in the way that, you know, Luke mentioned in the support group uh, uh, around Anita Hill. You, you gradually develop these new kinds of uh, identities. In Toni Morrison's beloved, the preacher named Baby Sugg says, the only grace you can have is the grace you can imagine. But actually what you encounter on the road is even better than what you can imagine because other people court agreement and disagreement with you and then you decide the different identities you can have. So, you know, I, I've gone on too long for this, but just, just because I want to worry that we don't turn 
our hatred of sexism into a sex-negative uh, set of formulas that really aren't about the people we are and, and ultimately, I think, won't help us be the people we want to become. I think the only thing I want to add to what George says is that, uh, but it's really a compliment to what you said, is that I think that there is a lot of work that's been done um, in the world that, uh, that can help men and boys deal with these issues. It doesn't tend to be, except in the case of like the work that people like Tony does, it doesn't tend to come from men, but there's a wealth of work, right, that's been produced. Uh, that represents feminist ethics that really need to be at the core of what uh, young men and boys are, are introduced to in life. And that's just not the way it was when I was growing up in the 1950s, and it's not the way it is in, in the early 21st century. And I think that that's a place where we need to be confrontational, right? I mean, we have to confront uh, uh, men and our conception of masculinity with these new realities, and we have to get these ideas in places where young people can be exposed to them. The younger, the better. You know, you don't have to be a brilliant psychologist to know that the longer you wait, the more difficult it is. We know this, yes, right? Uh, and so we've got a body of work that's been produced, but you have to pay attention to it. You have to pay attention to it, and, and a lot of this work still doesn't get paid attention to. Well, I, I just want to say, I don't know about all of you, but I've rarely been in a conversation like this. Is that, do we all agree? Yeah. And, and I think in many ways, what we need to do is have these conversations. Because until we unearth what's really, you know, I, I love what you were saying about the fact that women really understand men. I have been studying men my whole life. I don't have a clue, okay? And, 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 and part of when I'm sitting here today, I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, oh, oh. Because men don't talk about it, right? And I think part of what we have to do is create safe spaces and create contexts like this where men can tell the truth. Because it's really hard for men to tell the truth, living in patriarchy, you know? And I, I, we, we have literally 10 minutes, so we have a choice. We can go to the last question or we can take a couple questions, but part of me feels like I, I, I'm so loving what they're saying that I want to, do we all agree? Okay. So, so what, I, what, what I'm also feeling, and I, when you were talking, Tony, earlier about the cage, right? The cage, the, the not being able to be authentic. I almost started weeping. You know, I, I actually started crying because I started thinking about how patriarchy has really been so much more damaging in ways to men than it has been to women because we've gotten to keep our hearts, right? We get to walk with our hearts. And I think there's a grief in men that women feel all the time. I know with my own father who was a perpetrator, I woke up every day living in his melancholy. You know, I was swimming in his melancholy. So I think what I'd really like to hear from each of you is what do we do with men's grief? What do we do with men's grief? How do we treat it? How do we look at it? How do we bring it up? And how do we heal it? Well, let's stipulate that there are things about men that we can neither explain nor defend. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I think, you know, you're onto a very important part of it, and that is when we talk about privilege, uh, we sometimes imagine 
that the privileged have uh, easy lives and uh, are, are just sitting around chuckling over all that they have. And yet, privilege is created in such a way that you can never be satisfied. You always feel injured. And you know, you're talking about your, your father's sense of grieving. Um, you know, the, uh, in, in Latino music, the bolero is, a, is, is often a man's complaint about being abandoned by women. It, it's a trope that happens over and over again. You hear it in US country music. You hear, you hear it in, in the blues. Uh, deep sense of, of, of betrayal by people who themselves uh, brag about their own betrayals. And so there's, you know, there's something uh, about this in which the, the wounded uh, male self um, is even more dangerous than uh, the triumphant and victorious uh, male because they want endless recompense and reparations for the suffering that they imagine that they've had and, and, and no victory uh, will ever be, be, be great enough. I, I think that this is where we need a mix of inside and outside. Uh, in the talk that ended the morning session, Bill McKibben said, it's very good to have solar panels on your roof. It's very good to recycle, but ultimately that's not gonna change the system. You know, you have to do it. Those are necessary things. But if you don't change the broader organizations of power and opportunity, uh, then these things aren't gonna change. And so part of what men need are uh, successful women who outperform them at work because the shackles are taken, of sexism are taken off. Part of what men need is to go to schools where affirmative action is, uh, is routinely enforced and so that the smartest person in the class, even if it's a she, gets to, gets to show that they're the smartest person in the class. We need to have a society that stops squandering the talents and abilities uh, and the productivity of women for the vanity uh, of men. And so the rearrangement of, of things, even at the point of wages and the, and the point of production are, are important. But, but we also just need a new social charter in which we have a different understanding of what these relations are. Beautiful, beautiful. Anyway, I just want everybody to get a last yeah, chance, sorry. Yeah, and, and there's so many things. I, I'll, I'll just simply say one of the, what we try to do, and it leans into what you were sharing, Eve, is creating space. Creating spaces for men to be together. Uh, creating space for men to be authentic. In order to do that, those of us who are facilitating that space have to be wide open to be transparent. We, we didn't really get to talk about vulnerability, but that's in that space. Uh, creating space for transformative experiences, with no disrespect to all the educators in the room, but transformative experiences, not academic experiences. Creating space where we can reach in and grab the hearts of men. And I think key to, to doing this is to do it in a way where you can love men through the process and then hold them accountable at the same time. You know, it's not about letting you off the hook. We got stuff that we got to work on, we got behaviors, we got to challenge, but we can do that in a loving way. It does not have to be a hostile way to be accountable. We could be very loving and very accountable at the same time. Beautiful. Yeah. And to go off of that, I feel like it's, it's a matter of creating those spaces, but with a very focused intentionality of, of as men taking it upon ourselves to, to have a focused intentionality to push back against the cage that has been established, that we've, been lear that we've learned. And to really deep, deep, deep dig to that, the, the, the core of our, who we are is that we, we are uh, uh, pack animals as, as human beings. We work together. It's a collective energy of we that we as, as, as men with a collective forced energy 
to push back and to encourage each other and create that space together as opposed to the isolated activism of the eye and, and more to the deep organizing that's needed to make the, the, the systemic change that we need to see. And for us, for a lot of like our, our indigenous relatives, it's that process of turning back to our songs and the, and the ceremony and the original instructions that were born out of the land and understanding that the, our relationship to the land also dictates our relationship to each other. And that that land-based struggle is also a struggle for us to regain our humanity as men and as human beings. And so I think those, those things are very, it's integral, it's, it's, it's absolutely needed, and we have to do it with really focused intentionality. Beautiful, thank you. Well, really, all I have to say is I, I would just build on the platform of, of what it means to invite men and boys into an environment of love, right? And what's the perspective from which uh, that has to happen? That has to be from a perspective that's deeply informed by feminist ethics, right? It has to teach reciprocity. It has to teach mutual respect. And it has to help uh, us unlearn uh, all the things that we've learned throughout our lives. Beautiful. We're going to close with, if, if, all, we have a film. It's called A Man Prayer. Um, it's a piece that I wrote and then a wonderful um, filmmaker made with a whole group of men, which was really inspired by both Luke and Tony. Um, so we're going to watch that and then we're going to take a minute to really appreciate these beautiful men who are bringing in a whole new way of being in this world. <laughs> Puedo apreciar una caricia más que el rendimiento. Yo Il ouvre toutes mes parties, rester trop longtemps endormi. Mais I cherish, respect and love my mother. وأترجم صدى الحب لها لمحبة كل النساء والكائنات الحية. Can we give these amazing men a round of applause? 